You're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Yes. Keep it going. Keep the applause going. How, how would we know you were keeping the applause going if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. I am so happy to have you with me tonight, Wednesday, January the 30th. This year is now literally a 12th over, and I am as horrified as you probably are by that. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Major funding for this broadcast has been brought to you by a generous grant from the Russian government and viewers like you. Uh, be sure to check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, SoundCloud, Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. We are everywhere. If you type in Muddy Waters of Freedom or Muddy Waters Media, you will find us on literally everything. Be sure to check us out as always. Thank you, Kroger, for this delicious... Can you see this? I don't think you can see it. Almost. Well, anyway, it says Kroger Purified Drinking Water from the beautiful springs of... Somewhere in reverse osmosis. Bulavanaka. As always, the intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans has come from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook. He is on SoundCloud. Go to his Bandcamp. He's on something called Bandcamp. Buy all of his music. Buy every bit of his music. You will be so happy that you did that. Um... Thank you so much, Mr. Joe Davi. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him as always. Well, guys, I've been looking forward to my next guest for the last few weeks ever since I invited him on. Um, his uh, his resume is very impressive. I tried to pare it down so that we had time to actually talk, and it, it's still pretty uh, still pretty impressive. Uh, he is the professor of strategy, uh, economics, ethics, and public policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He's the author of 10 books, uh, 10 of them. Uh, he has published uh, papers and op-eds in the New York Times, Reason, the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies, and the countless other publications. His uh, newest book is When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to my fellow Americans, Mr. Jason Brennan. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You are a respected professor, author, and pundit. You've been featured in countless publications and media outlets, and now here you are, talking with a Jew in his guest room. What an honor this must be for you. <laughs> yeah, well, these are the best conversations because they're uh, they're real. There's real intellectual content to it. It's not doing sound bites for a radio show. So that, yeah, this is the best kind of thing. 
Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that we're we're starting off well. Yeah. Uh, so, guys, uh, be sure to comment with any questions or thoughts that you may have, and uh, we will tell you if you are right or wrong. Um, uh, Jason. So, the first thing I always ask a, a guest when they first come on is how you would describe your beliefs. Uh, and people usually take that to mean political, but really, just in general, how would you describe them? And then also, how would you say you came about them? Was it kind of an aha moment or a steady evolution? Tell us about that. Yeah, I can tell you, uh, you know, there's this thing like it usually starts with Ayn Rand. Um, it didn't start with Ayn Rand for me. <laughs> okay. uh, honestly, I can tell you that the intellectual turning point for me was um, in 11th grade. Uh, in, I was in high school in New Hampshire. Every high schooler in New Hampshire is required to take a class in economics. And I was doing very well. My high school teacher suggested I read Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Yes. And that was transformative. Um that's not to say that I necessarily agree with everything that Hazlitt says. I think there's more to economics than, than you can get just from that book. But the breaking down of things and looking at real consequences and not looking at things on the basis of their intentions, but on the basis of what they actually achieve, right. that just changed my life. And I've been, in a sense, my work has always been along those lines. Um, I, I feel like as a philosopher, what I mainly do is um, look at the kinds of arguments philosophers and average people give on behalf of policies, which are often based upon intentions, and then trying to show that the intentions don't matter, and what matters is the results. Well, and that's the problem, right? Like, I mean, and I, I always people get upset when I say this, but if you look at any histor any of the people we consider monsters in history, uh, even as far as like a Hitler or a, or a Mao or a Stalin, if you read their writings. It was very like their intentions for for what they considered to be good, what they considered to be necessary. Their intentions were, you know, for lack of a better word, good. And, you know, they had the best of intentions of, you know, uh, protecting the people that they wanted to protect from the bad people. And yeah. uh, and, you know, it, and, and because it was altruistic and because they were able to convince other people that it was altruistic in nature, they were able to do horrific things with the idea of, well, you know, someone in authority is telling me to do it and they mean well and, it, and you know, hopefully this will all turn out okay. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I do an exercise in one of my classes every year where I have students, we do, a, we read a wide range of literature. We also read uh, Mussolini and Gentile's Doctrine of Fascism and two sections of Mein Kampf. And then I ask students, well, what was the best argument that these guys made? And to their right. surprise, uh, what, what they are very surprised to learn is that Hitler's argument about why he should be, why it's morally permissible for him to, say, invade, like, the Eastern Europe and take their stuff right. is based upon premises, which most of the students agree with. They, <laughs> they end up going, well, they're like, this is a valid argument and I accept each one of these premises. So apparently I'm committed to Hitler's conclusion about this. Uh, right. And it's shocking for them. And it turns out like there's a, there's something wrong with the premises, but they don't realize it until they kind of see the implications of it. So right. they, yeah. So it's, you know, people often think these people are just insane, but in fact, they often are relying upon uh, beliefs that the average person in the United States has. Right, exactly. I mean, they're not the Decepticons, right? Like, we're, we're raised on this, or at least my generation was raised on this, uh, you know, the villains were not nuanced characters, right? Like, they were, they were you know, they, they, they woke up and wanted to do evil, you know, Gargamel and, 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 and people like that. That's not who these people are. And in real life, the people we consider villains are people that meant well and just had horrific ideas on, on how to do that. Something that you, you touch on a lot is, uh, is your defense of capitalism over other economic systems. Um, <clears throat> I've had everything from uh, 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 mutualists to communists to conservatives and progressives to libertarians. 
I myself am, uh, I guess, best described as an anarcho-capitalist. Um, but uh, everyone seems to have different definitions of capitalism. Uh, obviously, Marx's definition of capitalism is much different than a capitalist definition. What would you? How would you describe? You know, the 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 five uh, the, the nickel tour definition of of capitalism for you, and why do you believe it to be superior to, say, socialism or I don't know, mutualism? Yeah, it's always hard to define these terms, but I, I like to define socialism as the mandatory um, collective ownership of all property, where the collective is supposed to be everybody in society, though in practice, socialism ends up being a government owning everything and controlling things. Right. Um, and capitalism is a system which permits widespread private ownership, but private ownership can include collections of people. Right. Uh, and uh, it, it's a system that allows widespread free trade um, without a significant amount of kind of collective interference with the terms of the trade. And it's it's hard to op- you can operationalize it more than that. But you know, even these simple definitions, they're going to admit of like weird counterexamples. For me, um, I wrote this book called Why Not Capitalism, which is a reaction to Jerry Cohen's Why Not Socialism. Right. And so Jerry Cohen tries to make this argument. Says, you, the reader, deep down are a socialist, and I can prove it. He says, the way I'm going to prove that is I want you to imagine a camping trip where everyone really loves each other, and they're really kind, and they share everything with one another, and it's wonderful. And he says, look, it's like a socialist camping trip. And then I want you to imagine <laughs> – and it sounds good. He's like, and then I want you to imagine a, a, the same camping trip with behaviors that are endemic to real-life capitalism. He says, I want you to imagine that – Say uh, one person will refuses to help, uh, like she won't use her talents fishing unless we give her extra food. Um, people won't teach you how to crack nuts unless you relieve them of the dirty duties of the jo- of working together. Um, one person has more food than others, and he gloats over his superiority. And he says that's the capitalist camping trip. <laughs> and he goes, so which would you prefer, the cap the socialist system or the capitalist system? And everyone says the socialist system, the socialist camping trip is better. And so he's like, well, QED, therefore, wouldn't it be better if the whole world were like the socialist camping trip rather than the capitalist camping trip? And the answer is, yeah, in a sense, he's right, given the terms that he's used. But what the problem with his book, and, and I realized this, and I, I talked to him a little bit about it, but I didn't really have a full answer to it before he passed away, is that what he's really doing is something like comparing an idealized description of socialism, where he's stipulating that everyone in that system is basically perfectly virtuous and perfectly committed to justice right. always does the right thing right. they want you to compare that to real life so real life capitalism with jerks like real human beings right, right, and right. Like, so on that comparison i socialism plus angels is better than capitalism plus real people therefore socialism is better and the problem is we aren't comparing like to like because you don't know if it's the socialism that's doing the work or the stipulation of perfect virtue so what he needed to do, like he actually accepts that real life capitalism is probably better than real life socialism. Capitalism with jerks is better than socialism with jerks. But yeah. you want to know capitalism with with angels is that as good, better than, or inferior to socialism with angels? And so what I'm doing in the book is uh, parodying his argument um, using the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse cartoon uh, and saying like, here's a description of an ideal utopian anarcho capitalist society. There's nothing in it that happens that any ca- socialist could complain about. And even from a socialist point of view, it's actually superior to an anarcho socialist society. So that what you end up getting at the end is that if human beings were angels, we would still be capitalist and capitalism would be better than socialism. And given in real life where people are not angels, where people have incentive and information problems, um, capitalism is better than socialism. It just it's it's morally inferior. It has nothing going for it. And we can thank the Mickey Mouse Club for demonstrating this. Yeah. I mean, like you yeah. said, I mean, he's he's taking the all good actors presentation of socialism and then the 
if not all bad actors, at least a mix of good and bad actors definition or presentation of uh, of of capitalism. Whereas, you know, you know, if you were to apply the same thing to socialism, now you've got, you know, someone who refuses to fish at all because everyone else is already doing stuff. So they'll just, you know, sit back. And I I think even in uh, unless you've got like a either a religious kibbutz or people that are voluntarily in the system, if it's any kind of coerced system, you're going to have a lot of people that are like, well, you're making me do this. so I'm just going to lie around and wait for my my share of the, you know, fish or bread or whatever. So, um I wanted to touch on your your other. So it sounds like we have the same definition of of capitalism, pretty much. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it sounds like uh, so something uh, that you touched on with your your book. By the way, I, I just want to say I think I, did you come up with the with the title against democracy? Because the when I read it, it 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 talked about problems with democracy, but. I read it going into it thinking that it was going to be this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I guess epistle against, demo- you know, like against democracy, almost like how Hopi wrote, you know, democracy, the God that failed. Uh, and it didn't seem to come off like that. Was that was that like one of those where they they added a sensational title to something you wrote or? Yeah, I mean, you know. Given your background, it seems relatively tame, but you should see, recognize, like, for the average person when they read it, it seems like, I can't believe you're saying this stuff. They do, they do read it as this massive anti-democratic screed, right, right. Um, even though in a sense it is really quite tame. I'm not even trying to talk about in that book what a, a just society would be. I'm just basically saying, given that, if, assume for the sake of argument, we're stuck having nation states and stuck having governments that do the kind of stuff that our governments do. Right. Um, What's the best way to make collective decisions? And I don't think that universal equal suffrage has a lot going for it. But yeah, originally the book was going to be called um, Against Politics, because a lot of what the book is about is how politics makes us mean and dumb. Participation right. in politics is not particularly virtuous. It does not, it, it does not ennoble and enlighten us. And in fact, it, it stultifies us and corrupts us. And the argument is that most of us would be better off minimizing the amount of time and effort we spend on politics and minimizing the space that politics takes as part of our life. So it's going to be called that. And uh, honestly, like before, after it was accepted, after all that, like in the stage where we're like literally proofing the book, uh, my editor said to me something like, um, maybe, maybe this isn't exactly fair, but it was roughly along the lines of, if we call the book against politics, fewer people will read it, but they'll read it more sympathetically. If we call the book against democracy, many people will read it and they'll read it less sympathetically. Right. Um, so what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I, the previous book I published was all about how I can be bought, so I'm going to go for the money. Um, <laughs> so we called it against democracy, and fortuitously for me, Brexit happened, and Trump was elected, and a number of other things happened where it was like just, we, 2016, the year it came out, was a year of manifest democratic pathology so a book that could have been a small deal ended up being a big deal um it wasn't because i predicted these things uh it's just luck yeah well and it and bad luck for the world good luck for me yeah it worked out great for you um the uh uh it was uh, hl mankin's uh 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 you know, promise of, of the, the, the logical conclusion of democracy that we all come together and elect a, a, a bunch of morons um, is finally coming true. Um, but in that book, you, you talked about a, a couple things that I want to touch on before we get into your newest book. You mentioned, I love this comparison, hobbits, uh, hooligans, and Vulcans. Uh, and rather than me try to explain that, can you just do me a favor and just kind of go quickly over what that means and, and how it relates to, to your problems with democracy? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what I want to do with those three concepts is kind of very quickly simplify and allow you to, to capture in a simple idea what we know about political psychology. 
So if you think about a hobbit, if you've read the Lord of the Rings novels or you've seen the films, they don't care about the big adventures. They don't care about the outside world. They don't care about the cosmic struggles between good and evil. They just want to live their day-to-day lives and you know eat, eat breakfast and smoke pipes and things. Right. So there's a political analog to that, which is in the typical modern democracy, republic, whatever you want to call them, um, roughly around half the citizens are political hobbits. They don't care much about politics. They know almost nothing about it. And they don't know anything because they don't care. They don't participate much. They barely ever vote. They have very little interest in politics. They just want to live their day-to-day lives. Um, Those people tend to be highly ignorant, but not very ideological and not very invested. They don't do much. Um, Then there are uh, hooligans. So if you've ever been to a soccer game in in places where people actually care about soccer, not the U.S., um, you know that soccer fans often know a lot about the sport. They can remember things that happened in the past. They can tell you about previous games, but they're highly invested. For them, their fandom constitutes a major part of their identity. They tend to befriend people who are fans of the same team and make enemies of people who are fans of the other team. They'll even fight them. And they're also incredibly biased in how they process information. So, for example, uh, when Tom Brady is accused of deflating footballs, uh, everyone from New England, including me, is like, oh, we didn't really do it, or it's not a big deal. And then everyone from the rest of the country is like, of course he's guilty. Right, right, and here right. it's, we don't have access to different information. We're believing what is flattering to what we want to believe. Right. So the political analog of this would be the typical person who votes. Um, those people tend to be better informed, but not that well informed. Um, but they're also super ideological and biased. Uh, they only read news sources that confirm their uh, current beliefs. They automatically dismiss things that go against their beliefs. They befriend people who um, are like them, and they don't befriend people who are different. And they think that people who have different beliefs are evil and stupid and bad. And by the way, this is true of not just Republicans and Democrats, but it's true of like libertarians. You think of how many libertarians like go on libertarian dating sites and try to make sure all their friends are like big fans of Murray Rothbard. And no if you statist. say, yeah, yeah, and yeah. if you say anything nice about like John Rawls, they're like, you're an a-hole and I don't want to be your friend. It's, <laughs> it's rampant. Vulcans are supposed to be ideally rational people who only believe what the evidence want, like allows them to believe. And the reason I bring that up is not because I think I'm a Vulcan, not because I think Vulcans should rule. But the problem I see is when you read most political philosophy justifying the state and justifying democratic theory or justifying democracy, they're making the assumption that we're going to behave the way Vulcans do, or if we could just get people to deliberate more and participate more, they'd start behaving like Vulcans. I think the evidence is very strongly against that. A better way of describing it is democracy is the rule of hobbits and hooligans. And when you get people to participate more in democracy, the what it does is it turns them from hobbits into hooligans. It turns them into irrational, mean, dumb jerks. Right, and it allows them to so things they would never do themselves. It allows them to to put it on a proxy and say, "Well, I would never hurt you and take your stuff uh, because I, you know, to make my health care like to take money from you so that my health care can be cheaper. I can pay for my health care with that, but I will absolutely vote for someone else who will write on a sheet of paper that you should be robbed to pay for my health care and hire someone to you know threaten you with violence, effectively, essentially, if you if you choose not to do that. Democracy itself, it's not like you can really make much of a difference. The odds of you actually, especially in a national national election, the odds of your vote being the decisive vote uh, are you know, I mean considerably less than even winning powerball so it's it's kind of it's kind of foolish um something you brought up in your book was the uh, concept of epistocracy um which as soon as i heard the the uh the name i thought i know exactly what he's talking about but tell us a little bit about what that what that means to you sure so um the term epistocracy was coined by the uh, philosopher david esland um it really should be epistemocracy but he says that's ugly so we're gonna make it epistocracy 
So uh, epistocracy is supposed to be any political system in which, by law, um, not just by de facto, but by law, in some way or other, political power is apportioned according to knowledge. So one form of this, which is not the form that I would advocate or want to experiment with, would be <clears throat> something like, you only get to vote if you pass like a basic voter knowledge test. Right. So every every election, <clears throat> excuse me, every election you show up, you take a test. If you pass, you get to vote. Otherwise, you don't. Um, John Stuart Mill and John Rawls, the leftist philosopher John Rawls, at various points advocated uh, plural voting, which was everyone gets one vote, some people who have certain one vote. Um, there's other kinds of systems. The one that I think is worth trying would be a system where um, when when we have an election or any kind of referendum or anything like that, Everyone gets to vote, including children. It doesn't matter. But when you vote, you do three things. One is you, we, you say what it is you want. So you cast a vote for a policy or for a politician or a party. The second thing you do is you put down your demographic information, facts about who you are, because these things influence how people vote. And the third thing you do is you take a test of very basic political knowledge, not advanced economics, not sociology, but just simple facts like can you name the president? Can you name your representatives? Do you know which party controls Congress? Do you know some basic statistics about things going on in society, like the unemployment rate and so on? Right, right. When you have those three sets of data, you can then statistically calculate what would the public have voted for, demographically identical public have voted for if it were fully informed according to the test. And this, the reason I advocate this as an experiment is because this is the thing, this methodological system is the very thing that political scientists and economists have been using for like 30 years to figure out questions like, if people support free trade, do they support free trade because they're informed or because they're rich or because they're white or because they're female or they're poor? How would we know? We use this very method to determine it. So that's how we know things when people say, ah, oh, free trade is a thing for rich people. It's like, nope, that's been falsified. It's right. information makes you pro-free trade. Ignorance makes you anti-free trade. Um so we could use that system in principle to make better, get better political outcomes. The danger of it, of course, is that people might have an incentive to try to game the questions, um, to put yeah. certain questions in. Right. And so part of what I try to do in the book is talk about some ways of overcoming that problem. Uh, but at the end of the, end of the day, I'm saying, look, any kind of political system, the fact that we have politics is a failure. If I'm not even perfectly virtuous. I'm kind of an asshole. But if everyone were only as much of an asshole as I am, anarchism would for sure work. Right. Like that's how bad people are that like right. if they're lower than I am. And that's why maybe we need to say if we I'm not even sure if we need one, but if we need one, that's why. So politics not because of you, always, but, but the other people yeah. that are terrible. Right. Politics is, <laughs> is always a response to uh, culpable moral failings of other people. Right. If we are going to be stuck with that system, though, I think we should pick whatever decision making method leads to the best overall outcomes where people are freer, happier, healthier. Um, I don't think it matters if like the symbolic nature of a vote, I think, is a moral mistake. Oh, of course. Well, it's part of the, the cult of the state, right? So you've got your if you take any religion or cult and you compare it to any government it, it, there are so many. It's a, you have your anthems, which are like the hymns. You have your mm -hmm. uh, your your flags and your your you know. With, for us, it's eagles, and they, those those are the icons. You have your yeah. your your founders and your you know your 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 statesmen of past who are like the patron saints. You have all of the. You have a pledge. You have all of these things, which beautiful create, buildings that are like churches or synagogues. Yeah. Exactly. You have this 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 structure that's set up to make you feel like it is in and of itself this being the state, the government, America, which in, in reality, it's just a bunch of people writing on sheets of paper that they claim ownership over you and can tell you what to do. And then they rob you to pay people to 
threaten you with violence or use violence if needed uh, to make you follow that. Um, and so part of it is in the same way that a lot of people who are religious will pray even though they may or may not even think that it does anything. It, it, there's a very similar parallel to a, a vote that, well, I've voted. I've done my duty uh, as opposed to I think this vote's actually going to change anything. I mean, even even at the yeah. city level, the odds are very low. There's a yeah, that's right. And there's this mythology that we tell people that's supposed to justify democracy. And we know the mythology is wrong. I mean, no, what I'm about to say, no political scientist disagrees with. But yet, nevertheless, this is what we teach school children. <laughs> it's it's the idea that democracy expresses the will of the people. And so it's just us ruling ourselves. Right. right? And that would be problematic, even if it were true, because, <laughs> you know, we're not a collective, like it's exactly. you and me and individual people, with different preferences. Yep. Um, there is no will of the, the group that can be extracted from individual wills. We've known that since 1950. But um, the problem with it is that the, what they say to school children is people vote and they express their interest through voting. They express what they know through voting. So you vote for the things that are good for you. I vote for the things that are good for me. And then we all kind of balance that out. And then we end up selecting a kind of compromise candidate because that candidate sort of represents the like focal point of all of our different interests. And, you know, you might not get what you want. I might not get what I want, but we get something kind of in between because of our voting behavior. And then everyone's interests are largely served by that. The problem with that is that it's, it's relying upon a false theory of voter behavior. People don't vote for their interest and they don't vote on the basis of knowledge. They vote expressively. And the reason they do that is their votes don't matter. Right. So if you and I were, t- were casting a vote about where we're going to go for like lunch with like one other person, like because their votes matter so much, we might really put in some thought about how we're going to vote and like where we're going to eat and so on. Right, but right. this is more like, you know, you're, the chances of your voting being decisive are sufficiently low that voting against your interests and voting for your interests end up having the same expected utility. It's like winning the lottery matters, but an individual lottery ticket is worthless. Right. So people, when they vote, they vote to express their commitment to things. They vote in order to signal to each other that they're part of a team. They don't use their votes in order to promote the outcomes that they want. And for that reason, the whole starting point of it, expressing the will of the people, just never happens. Uh, and, and then we get bad results as a result of that. Well, of course. And I mean, this is why, and this is my chance to plug anarchy. Um, a, in my opinion, a <clears throat> smart altruist is going to make worse choices than a dumb, self-interested person. And the reason is because I can't know what you need better than you. I can know what I need, but me, even if I'm not a very smart person, I'm like, okay, I know I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. Uh, if, if I'm capable of, of, you know, functioning on my own and, and, you know, making decisions for myself, I can make better decisions for me than even you, who no doubt is smarter than me, could make for me because you have no idea what I need. So and especially once you get into the whole virtue signaling thing, you have people that are voting against their self-interest because they have this uh, idea that they can present themselves as this virtuous person who's willing to give it away for the, the, the good of the world, whatever that even means. Um, so I, I I'm interested in your idea of epistocracy. I'm also interested, there was someone, I forget who, who came up with an idea, almost like a share uh, system, like what they use in, in publicly traded companies, uh, or even in privately owned companies that have shares where it's based on a percentage of ownership rather than 
you know, knowledge or, or, you know, one person, one vote that the, the more of a ownership that you have over something, uh, the, the, the bigger of a vote you get. There are obvious problems with that as well. I mean, ultimately, yeah. any democratic system, uh, which everyone is forced to uh, abide under the, the decision that happens, it, to some extent, even epistocracy, uh, which is, I guess, a form of democracy, is essentially, I mean, it's, it's, it's a type of socialism. It's the public seizing the means of the of producing the civilization that we live under if, if you will um and it's socially socialization of the decision making process of, uh, of of how we all live right and it has the um just as socialism has certain incentive problems like the same problems occur in democracy exactly so uh you know if imagine like when i go to buy a new i buy a lot of guitars imagine next time i go to buy a guitar they say well you're only going to have to pay one millionth of the cost and the other you know remaining bits will be paid by society right then even a, a pretty decent person like I am might decide to buy extra guitars because I'm not really bearing the costs. Right. And I might decide to get things frivolously I might, and so on. Um, that's what ends up happening in a democratic system. It's not because every individual person has to make the decision, am I going to become informed or not? They bear right. the cost of being informed. If they're ignorant, they don't bear the cost. The costs are externalized onto others. Right. When, they make a, when they vote, they're voting expressively. If they make a bad vote, it doesn't really matter. It only matters if lots of people make bad votes. But every right. individual person is incentivized to act badly. When you're a politician, you then make certain decisions. And just only to some degree are you rewarded for making good decisions and punished for making bad ones. Because the voters are so stupid, they don't know what you've done. Their memory is about six months. Right. They're, like, that, when it comes to like economic performance, yeah. yeah, there's some evidence. Like there's uh, Larry Bartels and Christopher Aiken have some stuff on this. When it comes to say, the economic performance of the country as a whole on a presidential election, voters have a memory of six months, but they don't have the ability even to know whether if the economy is doing well or badly, whether it's your fault or not, like, right. whether it's because of what you did. But they will, however, reward you. If it's been doing well in the past six months, you'll get rewarded. If it's been doing badly in the past six months, you'll get punished regardless of your actual fault. So you as a politician get to externalize the cost of your behavior onto lots of other people who won't check you. Right. That it, so every step of the way, it's all externalities. And that's, like, that's what's so weird about how uh, I think statists think. Statists are like, as soon as they see an externality in a market, they're like, aha, there's a big market failure and there's a role for government. Right. And it never occurs to them to ask, well, what about the government itself? And it's like, it's all externalities all the time. Right. Um, so it's Brian Kaplan, my uh, friend of mine, the myth, author of the myth of the rational voter, says, um, when you think about how people think about government or market failure, their attitude is like, if a market is not perfect, anything less than perfection counts as a market failure and it gives a role for government. For governments to fail, they have to be Rwanda. It has to be a complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so like the standard for government yeah, yeah. success is like, Anything better than massacring your people counts as a pretty good, is a good enough government. Good, good show, purpose, yeah, yeah. Anything less than like the absolute perfection of our equilibrium models is failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to defend, uh, we have to defend a, a highly, high, highly idealized version as opposed to they can say, well, we're all still alive. No, you know, only, especially in the U.S., we have, uh, what is it, the high, we have the highest per capita prison population in the world, correct? Yeah, oh uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I mean, Louisiana, Louisiana especially is like the worst state and it's, it makes Russia and China look great. Actually, China's much better than the U.S. Exactly. And that's yeah. the thing. So, like, you know, I'll say that to people and they'll go, yeah, but we're doing good. I'm like, okay, but the, 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 so you, you don't get to, to give me a hard time about, you know, uh, you know trolley problems. And, and first of all, they, they constantly hit me with the free rider problem. 
socialism and democracy are the free rider pro- problem as policy. But anyway, we yeah. can agree with each other all day on this. I, w- I want to get to your <laughs> book, uh, uh, When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice, which I will now refer to as When All Else Fails moving forward, um, because I have to keep go back and, and, and read the entire title name. Um, so in, in your book, When All Else Fails, you talk about uh, resistance to the state. And, and first of all, let me ask you, have you, um, have you considered moving to Somalia? Oh, obviously. I mean, if you if you think the state's bad, obviously the first thing you have to do is go to Somalia. Go to Somalia. Which, well, people people always use this as an counterexample, and it's like, oh well, you know, there's actually been empirical studies on what happened in Somalia, and it's it's a pit, it's a hellhole. I'm not criticizing Somalians when I say that. I'm talking about the institutions, right? Um, but in fact, Somalians have been living better in the after government failure than before. Um, so even this isn't as much of a counterexample as people think. It was like their government was so bad that when it all collapsed, their lives got better. Um, but yeah, so you know the argument and the theory, the thing that I'm arguing for when all's failed is really simple. It's so simple, I'm surprised I have to state it, but I do because uh, most people don't believe it. Right. It's that there's moral equality, and so the theory is that whatever right defense you, the listener, have against me, you have against government agents, even when they're acting in their capacity as a member of the state. So I would say something like. If I were to decide that caffeine is bad for you and you shouldn't drink it, and so if I see anyone drinking coffee, I'm going to capture them, find them, take their money, and put them in my basement for 30 days. Maybe after having some sort of like fair trial with like your peers about whether they think you really did um, drink the caffeine, to be fair, um, you right. would you would think that you're like allowed to fight back against me and kill me to stop me. I want to say the same thing applies to the state when they when they criminalize caffeine or if they criminalize marijuana or something else that you shouldn't be allowed that you should be allowed to do. Um, if uh, let's say that like there's a guy at a party, like you and I are having a party, and one of our friends starts acting, it gets really drunk and starts causing a ruckus. So right. we try to stop him. But then in the process of stopping him, we get so angry at him that even after he's subdued, and we, like which is we have the right to subdue him, after he's subdued, we just start kicking and beating him. And then if that were to happen, people would think, okay, even though that it was right to subdue that guy, at this right. point you're using excessive force, yeah. and it would be permissible for you to then use force against us to stop him. Right. I say that makes sense, and the same thing applies to police in, say, the Rodney King beating. If you were there and you were armed, it's permissible for you to shoot those police officers, including killing them, to stop them from doing that. So I call right. this the moral parity thesis. You have the same right of self-defense against the state that you have against me, even when the officers are acting in accordance with the law. And historically, at least in the U.S., these ideas in your book shouldn't be controversial. I mean, we're told that the Second Amendment was ostensibly written to preserve the populace's ability to effectively use violence, to be effectively violent against the state. Um, And, I mean, Thomas Jefferson wrote his famous Tree of Liberty quote about that the Tree of Liberty needs to be fertilized from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Uh, I imagine that he wrote that possibly during the refractory period after raping one of his slaves. Uh, but uh, why why do you think that uh, most people recoil at the thought of using violence against someone who is hurting them as long as that person has a badge? Yeah, I mean, there's two reasons. One One's kind of a good reason and one's not a good reason. So the main reason I think is that People are, in general, resistant to using violence, period. And they also know that there's statistical differences between police officers and the average person. If you're, right. if you're walking down the street and you see three guys uh, dressed in blue shirts beating up a third guy, you're going to assume that they're mugging them and that the third guy doesn't have – sorry, the fourth guy doesn't have it coming. If you cross a street and you see three police officers attacking another person – statistically it's more likely they had reason to do that that they're not mugging him that there's something going on here that you don't know about which explains why they're doing it 
at, uh, at least starting off, even if they at least starting off. Yeah, 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 that's right. So if I were to go bomb another country and, this, and the U.S. government were to do it, you would think it's more likely the U.S. government has information which justifies their behavior than if I do it. And I say that even though I'm not a fan of the U.S. government and I think a lot of the bombings are evil, right. um, still there's something like that. So I think there's a reasonable worry about what we might call epistemic deference, the idea that I don't know what's happening here and maybe they know something which justifies their behavior, which I don't have access to. That's right. the smart reason. And I talk about that in the book and how to deal with that problem. The dumb reason, though, the bad reason is that people just believe that what I call special immunity, they believe that government agents are surrounded by kind of moral magic force field, which both permits them to do things that we're not allowed to do right. and requires us to let them do it. Um, and so what I try to do in the book is say, all right, the special immunity thesis holds that the conditions under which you, you can use self-defense or act in defense of others against state agents is much more tightly constrained than when you can act in defense of against civilians. So I try to come up with like what are like 20, maybe 20 basic theories that might explain special immunity. Why would government agents have special immunity as compared to the rest of us? Right. And then just knock them down one by one and show that they don't work. And so at the end, it's like, well – there's no real good reason to believe in special immunity. So we should go back and believe in everybody's morally on par. And I would imagine some of that comes from what we were just talking about, the cult of the state that you sort of get this idea that things like the rule of law or, you know, the, the institution of law enforcement, that there are these, they aren't as they aren't just the, and they sort of go back and forth. So the rule of law is this sort of, uh, 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 I like guess sentient thing in and of itself that we must follow. But then at the same time, when you challenge it, they go to the individual and say, well, you know, they're just trying to get back home to their families. And it's like, well, I'm sure the guy they're beating up is trying to get back home to his family too. Yeah. We're all trying to get back home to our families. Uh, I, I would think, or at least just get back home. Um, so I think there's some of that as well. There's just this sort of, uh, appeal to authority combined with it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome. Like you, you, you first you accept that you're you're a hostage and that there's not much you can do about it, and then you start to rationalize, uh, you know, why they're doing this to you and why it's okay for you because you're not a coward. You're just, you know, you're you're rationalizing why it's okay for you to, you know, do whatever this this hostage taker says, and before you know it, you're you're sympathizing with the hostage taker. So I think there's an an aspect yeah. of that too. Um, you uh, yeah, on that your, point, I wonder if I. Can I add something to that? Yeah, yeah, uh, no, go ahead. So, you know, one, one thing I get a lot of times when I when I describe the argument for my thesis and I go through and, and try to, like, knock down the, the arguments for the contrary thesis, people say, yeah, but your book, it's a dangerous idea because people might misapply the, the principles. Like, even if you say, like, these are the conditions under which violence or subterfuge or deceit are permissible, you hand that to the average person and have them believe that, and they're not going to live up to your book. They're going to misapply it. They're going to resist when they shouldn't arrest. They're going to be violent when they shouldn't be violent. They're going to use deceit when they shouldn't be used deceit. They're going to resist laws that are actually good laws that they shouldn't resist. And there's something to that. It's true of any theory that the theory can say one thing, and if it get other people to believe it, they won't live up to it. You know, I mean, an example, maybe it's so I only need some people watching like, you know, Rand's theory about how individuals should behave and Randians. There's a big disconnect between those in my experience, right? Um, which there you go. But what I say in response is like, yeah, it's true that my ideas might be dangerous, but I think the contrary ideas are even more dangerous. What we know about people is that they are conformists and they are cowards. If you get the average person in a room and a white person in a white lab coat tells them, I need you to electrocute that guy for, um, to death for science they'll do it. If you get the average person in the room and you say, hey, we need you to take this gas canister and dump it on those people and kill them, they'll do it. You get the average person in the room and you say, we need you to shoot those civilians over there or bomb them, they'll do it. 
So I think that the contrary idea, which is that we should accept state authority, is itself really dangerous, and the people advocating should be really quiet about it. Yeah. If anything, I you know, there's an optimal level of conformity, and we are past the point of optimality. We need people to be less conformist and use more individual discretion, even though it's true that there could be a point where if everyone just does whatever they think is right, that could be really dangerous too. Well, yeah. And I mean, there has to be some structure. Um, and people, I, I would say we use, you know, natural rights as, as a, you know, and, 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 you know, property rights and things like that as a, as a, as a structure for it, as opposed to like whatever the sociopaths that we all universally hate have decided to write on a sheet of paper today. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you, you mentioned the, the white lab coat and the, um, uh, telling them to, to electrocute someone to death. Uh, there was an actual experiment in the fifties, the, um, Milgram experiment. What's that? Milgram experiment. Milgram experiment. I wanted to say Mumford. I'm like, I know it's not Mumford. Don't say Mumford. So I'm not <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but I, yeah. So uh, and, and 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 they literally did. They they uh, told someone to uh, that it was for science and to electrocute this person. And they weren't actually electrocuting the person. The person faked being electrocuted. And um, they're literally screaming like they're dying. And they would say, uh, you know, they turned it up to the next level supposedly and say, you know okay, now do it again. And they actually got more comfortable with it as it went along because they got used to the idea. And if you read what, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, the, the guards at, at concentration camps during the Holocaust, they had a very, they weren't, a lot of them weren't anti-Semites. They were just doing their jobs. And it's yeah. scary how quickly someone can shut off and be like, well, you know, someone above me told me to do that and they probably got a good reason. And, you know, what do I know? So I'm just going to go along with it. I agree. And it, it, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of experiments on these. There's a lot of versions of the Milgram experiment, and they're they're terrifying what they reveal about people. And so sometimes people even say, "Well, this is what this changes." This is one of the arguments people will make about why you shouldn't resist cops. It's like, well, they're just doing their job. You know, police officers will say, "Look, right. I don't make the laws. You, the democracy, decided that marijuana is illegal, and I and so because of that, I have to arrest people. It's not my job to make that decision." And I'm like. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is it your really job. Is. And if you yeah. enforce it, you are liable to be harmed in virtue of your enforcement. And the argument that they're making, I'm following the law, it, it, that can't really be a good one on its face. It's like, because what they're basically saying is, no, you don't understand. I'm going to violate someone else's rights because I made a promise to do so in exchange for money. Yep. Yep. Exactly. That's not yeah. an argument. If they said something like, I'm going to follow the rule because I have very good reason to believe that the d decision was made rightly and that when they say one thing and I say something else, I should trust their judgment and not, uh, and not mine. Here's my evidence for that. That would be different, right? Like imagine, you know, um, imagine like a perfect, like a perfect, morally perfect, fully informed person appeared right here in front of me, like a god appeared and was <laughs> like, Jay, right now what you need to do is walk outside and kill your neighbor, I'd be like, I can't see why that could possibly be justified, but I know right. that this being somehow is evidence and information I don't. And so its judgment is better than mine. And I should follow it. Right. That would be one thing. I don't think you can do that with democratic decision making. You can't do that with half the stuff that we pass as laws. It's like, why do we make this decision? Well, because we're stupid, because it benefited the few at the expense of the many, because lobbying took place, because some short sighted politicians did it because it sounded good. Uh, because people voted expressively. So I don't think you have this kind of reason to defer to state action that you would have in principle with like, you know, God telling you what to do. Right. And yeah, it's, this isn't uh, God telling uh, uh, Abraham to kill his kid. Um, yeah. It's uh, uh, so one thing that I always say. So in order to be a good law enforcement officer, you have to be impartial. You have to be uh, uh, willing to apply it 
across the board, even to someone you know that you care about. You have to be as diligent and vigilant in enforcing it as possible, and you have to take your 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 personal. You have to be a, a consummate prof- professional and take your your personal feelings out of it. Worded another way, you have to be willing to use whatever level of violence, up to including up to and including deadly violence, uh, against even your closest loved one, your the person you care the most about on earth, to enforce a law that you think is one hundred percent wrong and unjust. If we were to mm. apply that standard of what it means to be a good law enforcement officer to anyone else, we would call that sociopathy. We would call that. Um, you know, being a horrific person, you know, every, every bad name in the book, but yet that's what it takes to be a good cop. It's, you know, I, I'm not here to bash cops. I'm writing, I, I, a friend of mine and I are writing a book right now about why this, the criminal justice system in the U S is dysfunctional. And we don't think it's like, because cops are bad people. I mean, there's some evidence that cops are more likely to be spousal abusers than others. They're not necessarily highly virtuous people either, but I don't want to say that it's just like there's something deeply wrong with them and their character. I think it's no, no. how human beings act in light of the incentives that they face. Yep. And I see the same behavior elsewhere. Like take college professors. So we have at Georgetown, we have a terrible honor system. It's it's embarrassing. It's so bad that my colleague and I tried to get it um, revised, but we just didn't have the legal basis to do it. Um, we tried to get the lawyers to overthrow it. So here's what we've done. We, we've written a, an honor code that says anytime you make any kind of mistake citations that counts as an honor violation and you could be punished for it i don't mean like you purposely pass in a plagiarized paper i mean things like you have indented paragraphs with a footnote and then the footnote is left blank because you screwed up and forgot to fill it in so like clerical passes, errors yeah clerical errors if a student passes that into me if they do it a lot i might grade them down because they made too many small errors but i know they're not trying to pass off other people's work as their own it's clearly right, indicating right. some of them just screwed up the problem, though, is that um, in our school of continuing studies or when we have adjunct professors teaching, they will follow those rules religiously and then it will go to the honor council and they'll often punish people who didn't have any ill intent, who just made a clerical error. Um, and those same people are like, what is wrong with you? Why would you inf- – like I know that's what the rule says, but why would you enforce it? Why would you had, enforce that? Right. I had, that, I had actually that conflict with the head of the honor council. She said – I, I got a case like this. I was the investigating officer, which means I'm supposed to gather the facts and make a recommendation about whether it goes to honor counsel or not. And I said, this person simply made clerical mistakes, all of them, all, like a number of them, um, but all of them are clearly indicated that it's someone else's quotation. There's nothing in here that a reasonable person could interpret as her passing off someone else's work as her own. Right. The reason she did that is because she's a continuing study student. She's not like a normal uh, Georgetown undergraduate. So she doesn't have like the skills to do this properly and she's working and so on. It's enough that I think the paper should be graded down by the professor, but there's no honor count. There's nothing morally wrong here that should be punished right the council head comes to me and says but our rules say that that is an offense and i know i know our rules say that but our rules are stupid and evil and for me to enforce them and and she said well but those are the rules i'm like look if you have the power to overturn me you're going to do it anyways but i'm not going to do the wrong thing because the rules say so so my recommendation which i will stick to is that we do not we do not continue on this and she dropped it luckily in that one case so but it just it shocked me that she knows she in this case this is like a tenured professor. She knows it's not plagiarism, right? But right. Stick because the rules say it's the rules. Because someone wrote it on a sheet rule. of paper. Yeah. Um, so you did rules jury nullification. When they're good rules, and you ignore them otherwise, that's that's morality. Right. right. Exactly. So so you engaged in jury nullification, basically. Oh yeah, absolutely. And actually, in the book, I argue in, on behalf of that too. I think you have. Uh, you have permission to engage in jury nullification. Uh, it's it's difficult to do it. You have to be really careful. But 
Absolutely. If I were, I'm never going to be called to a jury because of me, me talking about this on radio shows and so on. But if I were called to a jury and they said things like, would you enforce a law if you think it's unjust? I would lie through my teeth and say, absolutely, yeah, I would. Absolutely. And then I would nullify the thing. And then if I get called into the judge's office and he asks me questions about whether I'm trying to nullify it, I will say, no, I, I just don't think the evidence adds up. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll yes. And if he shows a clip of me saying this right now, I'll be like, <laughs> oh, I don't believe that anymore. I'll just lie to him. Right. He's like, are you lying right now? Because you said you would lie to me. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I totally changed my mind. I, I just don't think you did it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, uh, so something I, I want to talk to you about, and, and, and you've talked about this and you, you, you've talked about this a lot. And, and in the world of really any kind of capitalist, anarcho-capitalist, libertarian capitalist, uh, even among conservatives that are capitalists, we talk a lot about rights and um and and you know natural rights and and you know how that turn you know how that extends into you know property rights and private property rights we don't make a distinction between personal and private property like the like the left does um but i wanted to get your take on rights because we talk about natural rights which would indicate that it's something that's observable in nature and from what i've read and this is also my fault for reading sterner uh uh i'm not sure that i believe it to be an observable thing that 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 it's this natural thing i mean in nature it's just everything violating if if everything had rights uh it's a constant level of violation of everything's rights um and if we are to say um you know well we as humans have rights that they don't unless we have some kind of uh, you know, religious or faith-based basis for, for asserting that, it, it, it seems like uh, we're kind of arbitrarily saying, well, well, we're human, so therefore we have rights, but nothing else does. Uh, and if we use the, uh, say, the uh, intelligence uh, 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 justification, then that would mean that really severely mentally handicapped people or people in veget- vegetative states don't have rights. So I wanted to get your thoughts on rights. Do you think that it's an actual, natural, observable uh, uh, thing or do or is it just kind of a useful construct or, or what Sterner would call a spook that you know that gives people a peaceful and efficient way to interact with one another and to compete for scarce resources? Yeah, I mean, you're that, that's a good question to end on because um, you asked about moral epistemology, uh, moral metaphysics, um, the basis right. of rights, the basis of morality. So that's that's itself uh, fifty hours worth of talking. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, two minutes. Thing, you got I, two minutes. No. Yeah, you know you can't. There are lots of things that might be true that you can't observe. Like take mathematical things. Uh, two plus two equals four. There's no observation that could confirm that or disconfirm it. Like when I put my fingers together like that, that's not addition, right? So if I, it could be like certain things, you put two things together and they explode. You don't get four. You get nothing. Um, you, put, you take a ball of uranium of one size and a ball of uranium of another and you add it together and you get you less than four. Yeah, 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 right. You take right. water and you pour water, you pour a gallon of water into a gallon of water, and you get slightly less than two gallons of water because it's miscible. Right. So addition, addition in mathematics, these are things that we know, but there's no physical observation that could possibly confirm or disconfirm them. Maybe moral knowledge is like that. There's no, like for basic moral beliefs, there's not like, like a thing I would observe that would, like something has worth or not. Um, it's going to be some sort of intellectual um, knowledge, maybe like mathematics. As far as the nature of rights go, I'm not... You know, people use the word natural versus, you know, natural rights to mean like 60 different things. I never really know what people are right, talking about right. when they say it. But right. here, here's what I would say. Um, rights are not simply a matter of convention and simply a matter of, of legal fiat. So a good way to think about that is like uh, the philosopher Michael Humer has this thought experiment. He says, I want you to imagine there's a hermit living on an island by himself who's not part of any society. If rights are simply a legal fiat created by a society, then 
it follows that when you show up and you take his stuff and eat his food and burn down his house, you may have harmed him, but you haven't violated any of his property rights because by hypothesis, he's not part of a society. And so he's not part of a thing where these property rights have been created. And that's still, it seems like you have violated his property rights and you've done something wrong. So I think the most reasonable view would be something like this. Whatever the basis of morality is, and that's a complicated question, human beings, and maybe some other things too, have some degree of a core of rights, a core of a right to life, a basic right to some sort of property, some other possible rights as well. And these things are determined by whatever determines the content of morality. But then the fine details of these rights might be determined to some degree by convention. So take, for example, uh, there's um, the question about how long can you leave property in out without using it before it reverts back to the commons. Uh, you know, morality in the abstract might set some parameters, but it doesn't right. get a fine line. But every right. society needs to create an artificially bright line. Right. So say things like, well, 20 years of non-use, it reverts back to the commons, even though the, the truth is that there's not a real point where it switches. So I think um, I think a lot of our rights are partly conventional, even though maybe the core of them is non-conventional. The core of them is something that a society has to start with and turn into something uh, more fine-grained. So it is, so there is some obvious level of like you mentioned the stickiness of, of of property ownership how long that extends out from non-use and things like that so I mean it it, it there is a, a level of construct there so thank you for 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 ending my what what should have been an entire episode series uh, uh with a with a with a two or three minute answer I appreciate that um <laughs> I will definitely if if you like I definitely love to have you on sometime in the in the near future um because there's so many other things I want to talk to you about um but I really appreciate you coming on uh thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, let's do this again. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, if you give me one second, I do my little... Uh, sh- oh, uh, final... Th- do you have any final thoughts? I think we covered everything. So, uh, you know, just, just make sure to buy all my stuff because then I get I get more money and it's great. Okay. I'm going to give you a chance to say <laughs> that right now. So, uh, Jason, before I let you go, any final thoughts, anything that you want to uh, plug, uh, the uh, the floor is yours. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I appreciate if people read the book When All Else Fails. Um, I think it's an important message, and I'm trying to correct a prejudice that we think we have that is dangerous. Cool. And I'll have all of that in the show notes to, to all of your all of your stuff. So buy all of the stuff. If you're watching this, buy every single thing this man has ever written. Uh, you'll be uh, wiser and uh, happier for it. Uh, guys, thank you again for joining us uh, for this episode of My Fellow Americans. Uh, check out Muddy Waters Media on Thursday for uh, the writer's block where Matt Wright will be interviewing. I forget his name, but he's a neocon. So that should be fun. And then uh, check us out next week on Tuesday on the Muddy Waters of Freedom where Matt Wright and I will be uh, parsing the the, the week's events uh, that happened the very minute that the last episode ended. And then uh, check me out next week on My Fellow Americans uh, next Wednesday night at 8 p.m. And uh, have a great week and God bless you.
my friend. In reality, you are my kin. Though I view the world through another's iris. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together and become hybrid. At the least, slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye in a time with the blind leads the blind. Who am I to deny with cry when a loved one dies? I recognize that body outside with a hole in the body that was alive. Now they find it with chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at nine. It ain't even make it to the news at nine. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these tears, I close my eyes. Open up to only find I'm in line. There's a pointless murder happening all the time. Either lose your life or mine. Caught up in the first design. That ain't how it started now. How were we supposed to survive? There's a war going on outside. Who would want to raise a child? Whom this room is flashing by? Now you have to say goodbye when you watch them on the news at five. Don't tell me how. Tell me why. Thank you.